Welcome to the September 9th, 2007 podcast of Reverend Liz and Friends at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Silver Spring. If you read your newsletter, you know that I conceived this sermon to talk about the Lamed Vav, the 36 in Jewish lore, 36 mortal people scattered about the world whose living has a redemptive power in the world. My point was to discuss the appeal of the concept, not only in its mysticism and idealism, but also as a worldly option for any of us. Think about it. What would it mean to be a Lamed Vav? Who would you guess was a Lamed Vav? Nelson Mandela? Václav Havel? Mother Teresa? Martin Luther King Jr.? Eleanor Roosevelt? The Buddha? They could be. The Lamed Vav are defined as regular people who generally live and work in anonymity. They're humble. They don't go around touting themselves as saviors of the world. No one knows they are Lamed Vav. Perhaps they don't know themselves. Their good deeds are done for the sake of doing them, not with a sense of cosmic destiny. You know what this means, don't you? You could be a Lamed Vav. This seems particularly germane for the beginning of the Jewish New Year and our new church year, when the theme of examining how we are living, making reparation, freeing ourselves from misdeeds, committing to our best living is so much on people's minds. Herein comes that classic line from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, Behold, I place before you today life and good and death and evil. Choose life. Judaism observes this holiday through the metaphor of trial in which God is the judge, a merciful judge, perhaps even one of those liberal activist judges, but a judge nonetheless. In reflecting on this theme, the 12th century Jewish sage Maimonides suggested that, quote, everyone should regard themselves throughout the years as exactly balanced between acquittal and guilt. So too we should consider the entire world as equally balanced between acquittal and guilt, unquote. And the brilliant implication of his model is this, and I'm quoting again, if one commits, you're perfectly balanced already, If one commits one additional sin, they tilt down the scale of guilt against oneself and the entire world and cause its destruction. If one performs one good deed, they swing themselves and the whole world into the scale of merit and cause salvation and deliverance to themselves and all humanity. In other words, Everyone would live, this is me again, I know sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between Maimonides and myself. In other words, everyone would live with a sense of their lives' power to save or doom, 
to renew or abandon. This is the power of the Lamed Vav. But Maimonides was using the High Holidays to suggest a way to view the critical power of every individual in life. And indeed, humanity's greatest leaders have lived this way, have understood this, and thus has come their power and their lasting effect. If we live as if our living is charged with meaning and impact, not only for ourselves, but also the wide world, then it is. And living with that kind of intentionality and authenticity and care, if, as if you were a Lamedvav, is also what living as a Unitarian Universalist ideally is. As the two coincide in principle, the model of the Lamedvav is a beautiful illustration of how powerful a good life, well-lived, can be. Nelson Mandela, Eleanor Roosevelt, they lived as if their lives had enormous potential to save people. And their lives gained exactly that kind of power as a result. Now, here is where the value of my newsletter write-ups comes into question, for those of you who decide whether you're coming or not based upon them. Because I will now digress, due to developments since that newsletter came out, What happened is that in working towards this service, I found myself spending more and more time researching the traditional Jewish sung prayer of Inu Malkenu that underweaves our worship this morning. We're going to hear it done shortly by our sanctuary singers and Karen Pang and then sing it ourselves as our closing hymn. I didn't want to use it inappropriately or casually because it is a sacred song. To me personally, as I learned to love it in services at synagogue, and to all Jews, as well as to anyone who honors the prayers of any faith tradition. In the end, making sure that I felt we were honoring and drawing on it carefully meant studying its history, where it comes in the traditional Rosh Hashanah liturgy, details of the Hebrew that is the original language of the prayer, and a range of English translations and interpretations, and then choosing how much of the melody and text to use ultimately finding no English interpretation that seemed really usable for our purposes. I tried to responsibly adapt it from the original Hebrew text to a liberal English version that would speak both to all of us gathered here with our diverse heritages this morning and still also to the original sense and story of this sung prayer. All this was more than I was expecting to do, and I was discussing it with a colleague because we have a finite amount of time in our weeks so that finding that more and more of my time was was ending up in this direction was meaning it wasn't going elsewhere. And they suggested that there is a lesson for all of us in such spending of time. And so I'm attaching a tangentially related part two onto my message this morning. The two ideas are perhaps related only by the idea that living intentionally and with respect for the sacred and the Most High takes and offers sometimes more than we expect. The tune of Vinu Malkenu is actually already in our hymnal, but it's tacked to an English lyric that is a combination of some of Vinu Malkenu stuff and things from another psalm, and it actually doesn't have, in my opinion, almost anything to do with the message and intent and, most important, the yearning mood of the original of Vinu Malkenu. 
I don't know whether I've managed to capture those better, but at least I believe it is evident that I tried. And that makes a difference because the easy thing is to take something that works for us on one level and ignore the rest, especially if the rest strongly does not work for Unitarian Universalist sensibilities. You've heard me talk before about how, in the end, that kind of approach shortchanges our own faith development because it never gives us anything hard to work on. But the other downside of that only easy approach is that if we are drawing if what we are drawing on is outside our small world of Unitarian Universalist sources and we're only drawing on the easy stuff, then our right to draw on it, which is already questionable to many, is all the more tenuous or downright gone at that point. This is a very live dispute in our movement just now. Whether we have any right at all to draw or adapt or adopt or take or steal depending on how you look at it, from other traditions. I come down firmly on the side that says religion is always changing and always shared. Sometimes it changes from within, as we heard in that story from the Babylonian Talmud of how Avinu Malkenu originated and then changed in its use over time. Sometimes religion changes from without, influenced by other faith, cultural, even regional traditions. What we Unitarian Universalists do in drawing on other religions as part of developing our own is nothing new. That is the way almost all religions have come into being and how they have evolved, including Christianity, Islam, and even Judaism. The issue is not actually whether we do it, but how? American Indians scoff at people who draw on their traditions without bothering to understand them, at all the gringos who take as their spirit name Wind Horse and Star Wolf, never Fat Bear or Lame Dog. These kind of issues, though, are not reasons we must close ourselves off from other faiths that powerfully beckon us with something that speaks to our souls. They are lessons in what not to do and in what to do. Perhaps I am more careful because I know about the Unitarian Universalist Church that ignorantly scheduled an all-church potluck as part of their observance of Yom Kippur, (laughs) a holiday traditionally marked by fasting. As a half-Jewish Unitarian Universalist, I see, as I have preached, power and beauty in the intersection of Judaism and Unitarian Universalism. I wish to share that vision, and I am profoundly moved and gladdened to be privileged to share it with this congregation, to learn and sing beloved Jewish tunes together, to watch interfaith families join our congregation because of the mix we offer in turn, to know that non-Jewish members feel wholly welcome and engaged at our annual Passover Seder. It is hard and important to do interfaith work seriously and well. It is a task that never eases, both because we never know enough and also sometimes because our position and understandings change over time. I have a prayer shawl given to me by my parents. It belonged to my Jewish grandfather, who is very observant. I keep it proudly and tenderly in the special bag it came in. 
When I first got it, I thought I would wear it perhaps when celebrating important Jewish occasions at church. But as those occasions came and went, I never quite felt comfortable donning it. I still believe I will wear it sometime and somewhere, but I also believe I have to take where and when I wear it very seriously. And in the end, it may not be in church on a Sunday. The wearing of a prayer shawl is an important thing in, Jerusalem, in Judaism. Jews read the Hebrew verse set into each prayer shawl and kiss each end of it before they put it on. It is a mindful act. It is a faith act. Each Sunday when I am alone for a minute, occasionally it's just a few seconds, and putting on my vestments before I come to worship with you, I look at the stole I'm going to wear, and today I chose this one because it has the Jewish star on it. I look at the stole I'm going to wear and I read its symbols all the way around and I remember what they mean and the trust with which the stole is charged by those who gave it to me. And then I kiss each side of it and I put it on. So I have taken what holds for one prayerful garment and brought it over to my own prayerful garment. And whether it ends there or not, I don't know yet. But I know that I am paying attention and doing what I firmly believe is right and abstaining from what I am at least not sure about. Hopefully this means that while I and we together may innovate, we won't make mistakes. Or if we make mistakes, they won't be stupid mistakes. And if someone disagrees with our choices, we can hear their view and explain our view and perhaps come to a deeper understanding, perhaps changed, perhaps not, of what we do and why. This year, the beginning of the holy period of Ramadan coincides with the Jewish New Year. For Muslims as well as Jews, it is a time for reflection, mindfulness, prayer, self-sacrifice, concern for others, and reconnecting with the divine. No one people owns those values. No one people is responsible for them or the ways they are enacted in faithful living. May we be reminded by this year's coincidence of timing and by the knowledge we carry in our own hearts that we have our own wrongs to right, our own estrangements and concerns to heal, our own pilgrimage to pay attention to, by all these may we be reminded that no one owns religious practices. By our very access to other faiths, however, we are made responsible that what we do for our faith we do carefully, that we understand it matters, as if our lives, our souls, or even the fate of the world might depend upon our actions. If we live as if our living is charged with meaning and impact, not only for ourselves, but also the wide world, then it is. Happy Rosh Hashanah. Amen.